Welcome to Inside Shopify UX. I'm your host, Lalao Yalayo Pearson, UX Director at Shopify. On today's episode, I speak with Senior UX Manager Christian Zoltok and Staff Service Designer Roxy Nicolusi about complex systems, where we discuss making the system visible to itself, answer the question, what is a dark pattern, and so much more. Stick around. I, we can hear Roxy, is that snoring. the dog? <laughs> you can hear it? Uh, she's growling. I'm going to give her a little peanut what butter she, thing and distract her. What is she growling at? <laughs> okay, that's, a quite, that's, a, that's a good noise. Yeah. Okay. I was uh, like, is she sleeping? <laughs> <laughs> Where is she? Where is she? She's just sat there off camera growling. She does snore. Okay. She does snore. It's absolutely adorable. And she sleep barks, which is very cute. Oh, <laughs> I love it. Welcome to another episode of Inside Shopify UX. I am Lalao Yalayo Pearson, and today I have two amazing guests with me, and we're going to be talking about designing complex systems. So I'm going to throw it over for you guys to introduce yourselves. Christine, do you want to kick us off? Tell us a bit about you and your team and what you're working on. Sure. So uh, my name is Christine Zoltok. I'm the senior UX manager for Checkout at Shopify. Um, and our team is working on building the best checkout experience in the world for buyers and merchants alike. Amazing. And we're going to dig into that a lot because every single one of our users uses Checkout, as you would expect. Roxy, tell us a bit about you. Hi, my name is Roxy. I'm a staff service designer, which means I design omni-channel experiences from the inside out. Um, I'm focusing on everything to do with money at Shopify, be it capital loans, installments, disputing purchases, merchant chargebacks, the list goes on. So I'm a team of one that's connecting many different pieces in order to make seamless experiences. And using several superpowers at the same time. So we will also be digging into that. Um, okay, so kicking off the first topic of discussion, maybe. The framing of this episode is about complex systems. So in your own words, what would you define as a complex system? And what does it mean to actually be designing one? Maybe, Roxy, we can kick off with you because you kind of painted the picture of all of the many staff, right? A complex system. In my experience, that's typically a system that includes many disconnected pieces that rely on each other. Often yeah. aren't talking, but should be talking, which yeah. is where we come in. Yeah. And involving people who probably should say more to each other, like generally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and Christine, what about you? Yeah, I love that definition. Um how would I build on that? I think like for me, a uh, complex system, uh, lots of different audiences, lots of like sort of second and third order consequences of choices that get made. So um, a lot of like uh, decisions that have consequences two or three levels down the line, um, competing interests uh yeah probably like stuff that's visible stuff that's not visible yeah um those All are the things the that are top of mind for me yeah yeah it's so funny because I remember um when I was doing my master's in 
I guess, interactive systems. So this this kind of thing. Um, shout out to all the people uh, who did the uh, human-computer interaction degree at University College London. But we had a module that introduced a concept called soft systems methodology from like 1988. And in that, I still remember the author. It's a guy called Peter Checkland, who's a professor in the UK. Uh, he talked about these systems that had like people, processes, machines, and software, and then like put it into this thing called like the Welschstingstown, which I totally butchered what German word is supposed <laughs> to mean, like the worldview. Um, but it's super interesting because it is exactly that, right? Like it's a, it's a system with all of these component parts and then people who also need to be designed around the machines and the software. Um, sticking with you for a second, Christine. So like checkout is probably one of the most commonly trafficked parts of Shopify. Like people... Sometimes I don't even know they're shopping from a Shopify merchant until maybe they see the familiar checkout experience. And in the last year, a lot of things have changed on checkout. So do you want to tell us a little bit about like what was that journey that you guys started out on and how are you thinking about it as you kind of scale it into like full service level? Yeah, um, I think like, um, you know, the the mission of the checkout team has evolved a lot over the years at Shopify, mm -hmm. I think. Um, some of the first went, uh, sort of goals of that team were really to build the foundational best checkout experience that we possibly could for, um, for new merchants. And so, um, you know, the focus of the team at that time was very much like, how can we create a checkout experience that instills trust, mm -hmm. that um, works, can be customized for merchants, um, but that is kind of going to be like a, a, a set of standard for uh, what is a good checkout experience on the web and yeah. um, how can we help people have confidence when they're purchasing things online. Yeah. Um, as time has gone on and our merchant base has gotten bigger and more diverse, um, the types of problems we have to solve are totally different. So we're still trying to solve that, that same original problem of like, mm -hmm. you know, what is this best out-of-the-box experience? But now we are um, also trying to make sure that our checkout is flexible enough to scale uh, up with any type of merchant. So whether mm -hmm. you're selling internationally or you're yeah. depending on different types of um, products you might be selling. So last year we added subscription support, which um, it's just a different type of checkout experience that needs to yeah. happen. Uh, we need to ask different types of questions to buyers about um, asking for consent for them to uh, for us to vault their card for future payments. Mm -hmm. um, there are different policies that need to be followed. The uh, the legal requirements around subscriptions are more complicated. So yeah. um, we also have different types of sellers. So um, flash merchants using yeah. uh, our platform uh, that's really pushed. Um, pushed our checkouts in different ways over the years. So yeah. all of load that is sort of like, AKA load breakers. Yeah. <laughs> Change the types of problems that we have to solve as a team. Yeah. And it's fascinating because I think if anyone else has ever worked in e-commerce and you know that, you know, teams spend a lot of time designing checkouts and trying to make them like easy to join in and stay on and like make it so minimum number of people you know, drop off and, you know, keeping them online in high traffic. But it, it's like we have this added layer of like designing a checkout that works for that 
And there's like the partner ecosystem that needs to also support our merchants. And there are additional developers who are building in. So like there's this other layer of designing a single checkout flow, but then designing it to make it extensible, I think, as you were saying, going forward, right? Yeah, yeah. So next next year and in the future years, we're going to be making checkout a lot more extensible, um, allowing our partner community to build uh, apps directly into checkout um, and sort of like opening up that experience in ways that it hasn't been possible before. Yeah. So looking at that expansion, maybe if we pivot back, Roxy, to the, the problem space that you occupy, because sometimes it's like you have two entry points to complex systems. One is it looks like a basic technical challenge, aka checkout, and we're just going to fix checkout and suddenly like the iceberg opens up underneath you and you're like, whoa. And then there are other mm-hmm. challenges like designing for support and, you know, the inevitable scenarios when things go wrong, where it's very obvious that it's already complicated because it involves people, basically, right? Which is a lot of the mm-hmm. world you're occupying. Yeah, uh, I knew embarking on this project that it was going to be complex. And every single stone I turn, I <laughs> realize it's so much more complex than I thought. Um, our support teams are brilliant. They have so much knowledge, they do so much. And I have been trying to come in and understand even a sliver of what they do and how they do it. It's been mind blowing and yeah. also incredible to learn about. So we have the opportunity to see just how many things are happening behind the scenes. I yeah. think our merchants interact with an interface and sometimes they might feel they're sending an email to support but it's so much more than that. Yeah. They are contacting support who is running around using multiple different systems in different ways. They're talking to partners. They're escalating things. They're just doing so much. Yeah. And the whole strategy is to make it a seem as simple as possible when yeah. in reality we're kind of like the, the duck trope swimming looks all <laughs> Looks all calm and collected on the surface, but underground, you're like frantically, yeah. (laughs) Well, so this is the thing. That's pretty much what we're doing. (laughs) I I feel like that is kind of what we're doing, but at least we've walked into it with that intent, right? Because I think this is where like, so you obviously, you introduce yourself as a service designer. We don't have many at Shopify, but this is a great problem space where those tools from service design are really powerful because the first step is at least just saying, here's what it looks like, right? So like you've been working on things like just mapping all the journeys, all the uh, blueprints and like showing who is where, doing what, for what purpose and showing that complexity because you could start designing and break something quite fundamental if you haven't at least done that mapping Mm -hmm. exercise up front, right? Absolutely. Um, The approach has been to make the system visible to itself yeah. And I think that has been really eye-opening to a lot of people that are a part oh, of the system. such a great way of putting <laughs> Let alone it, right? those yeah. designing it. Love yeah. that, yeah. It's funny that, isn't it? We, we probably understate that in general across tech, right? Because there's so much emphasis on the tech that we sometimes understate the fact that we're designing systems and services that are maybe a bit more organic, uh, than just this automation or this self-serve capability that we've created. Um, what would you say, so maybe building on that a little bit, what would you say, Christine, has been the most surprising 
and then complex challenge as you've been working on um, checkout. You know, something that everybody assumed would just be like, not that coding problems are, are easy, but like you would just sit down, an engineer would build it, and you'd have a UI and it would be done. But the reality was like an order of magnitude, uh, you know, more complicated than that. I mean, for me, the big surprise has been like just how complex checkout is under the hood and how many different versions there are of it. Um, so that was something I found really challenging when we started reviewing work or or even like adding very sim- what we thought would be very simple features to checkout, um, running it through the paces of all the different versions that exist Um mm if you have such and such setting enabled or not enabled, um, if you are in a different locale, um, mm-hmm. like how uh, features kind of conflict with each other. So I, I really loved what you said, Roxy, about like making the system visible to itself. That's yeah. something where that's like very top of mind for us in Checkout is how can we help um you know, expose and document some of these paths that already exist so that when we do mm-hmm. add to the system, we kind of could see like all the other pathways that it's fitting into and uh, where some of the conflicts are going to be. And it's funny that, isn't it? Because it is the inevitable outcome of anything you put out is that people will adapt it and create their own paths as well, right? So like, And the fact that we've always had this idea that merchants' business is their own business and they can configure their stores in any way, we've kind of also created the problem whereby changing, improving, or adding to anything is inherently harder because we've got to think about all the options and configurations that people want to have. And sometimes they get like really, really, really niche. Um, How do you both, maybe just to expand out, how do you both think about the people element? Of this because I guess in in your case Christine we're talking about buyers merchants and then potentially the people who work on behalf of merchants so like developers and um, other apps that are doing interesting things for a merchants checkout in your case Roxy we're talking about buyers merchants and then all of the support people but then also like a bunch of policies that we may have around like legal requirements and like so how do you how do you start that process of like, you know, we talk about understanding your user. Your users are many and varied mm-hmm. in scope. So how do you actually like understand them and like scale it down to, to like a thing that can be addressed, like a problem or a need that can be explicitly addressed? Maybe, Christine, I'll start with you on that one. One of the things that we try and do is sort of like start with the buyer first. So usually that's our our first audience, but typically by making a decision that is better for the buyer, it usually does end up uh, benefiting mm. the merchant in the end. So, okay. um, but we are kind of balancing those two. So sometimes we can't 100% make a decision that is um, only in the interest of the buyer. Like we have to sort of balance those two. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of run it through the paces of our our audience groups like buyers first and then merchants mm-hmm. and um and now increasingly partners like thinking about how they're going to be building into checkout um are they going to be able to uh build the experiences that merchants are looking for um yeah, yeah. that's a lot in there and 
when you talk, have there been situations where there is a conflict between like doing the right thing for the buyer and the merchant? Because I'm imagining Roxy, like chargebacks are a great example of a an, a, a natural point of tension for, for us in money around like, mm-hmm. you know, a sale and, you know, did you, did you actually get that product? Do you still want to buy it? Was it fraud? And like, you know, there's a little bit of friction there between doing right by one or the other. Don't get me started on chargebacks. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of, I don't want to say trade-offs, but prioritization opportunities when yes. it comes to having so many different users. And mm-hmm. Shopify is extra complex because when you think of user experience design, it, it typically focuses on like one user. Yes. Um, so in Christine's example, it's we're designing for the buyer, which then impacts the merchant. Um, within Shopify, we have the buyer, then we have the merchant, then we have the frontline support, then we have escalated support, then we have the partners, and then we have all the processes and the tools that they have. Um, so there are a lot of stakeholders, and it's a juicy question that I'd say there isn't, you know, one silver bullet answer, but I tend to focus on the impact that a change will make. And so if we, I guess it's almost the risk, if we don't change this or if we don't prioritize this person's need, what's going to happen to the rest of the org and focus on the thing that will make the most impact or mitigate the most risk. Absolutely. Does that resonate with what you're doing then, Christine, as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think like um, one of the things that we talk about constantly is is trust and buyer trust, mm-hmm. buyer trust and merchant trust. And, uh, you know, one of sort of a, like a classic conflict that you can imagine in a selling experience is um, something like a dark pattern. Like how mm-hmm. do we how do we feel about dark patterns? Um, is that something that we want to block our merchants from doing, um, even if it might lead to more sales. Um, and so that's you, something um, that we actually ABC yeah. that for our, for our audience. It's like walk us through a, what a dark pattern is and an example of the type of dark pattern that you might see in a checkout flow, for example, you know, a dark pattern is, um, any kind of a UX pattern that, um, I would say, uses manipulation or uh, some sort of uh, not entirely truthful way of presenting a situation to encourage a behavior um, that might not be in the best interest of the user. So um, how that might look in checkout might be um, creating a false sense of urgency to checkout um, when one doesn't actually exist, which might... um, you know, falsely incentivize somebody to make a purchase. My favorite or that, like angriest one is the sneak into basket. So like mm-hmm. I wanted to buy this thing and you've added like two other things into the basket that I have to pay for, but I didn't see when they went in there because I didn't pick those two things either. So that that I find is a super, super evil dark pattern. As well. Oh, that is a sneaky one. Yeah. I don't know if I've even experienced that. Oh, Were I've they had it. free things? No, it was like, uh, I want to buy a shoe or a top. And then now I'm subscribed to like a monthly magazine from this brand Mm. that I'm paying for. And I'm like, I did not want to receive a physical magazine. Um, It was actually a really big brand that did that a few years back. They don't do it anymore, but it was like, "Mm, 
If I hadn't caught that, I would have been wondering why I paid so much for the top because that wasn't what I was expecting to pay. Okay. That's a great example. Yeah. (laughs) Dark patterns essentially assume that the person making the purchase isn't paying attention and they try to take advantage of that. Exactly. Exactly. And I think something that was interesting about what you were saying, Christine, about trying to design it so that our merchants have control means that we have to figure out if we want to enable them to manipulate their buyers. They're not our buyers, but we, as Shopify, we do have ethics that we want to enforce. I know. It's definitely a tricky situation. It is. Yeah. yeah. And I think the way that we've managed this um, in making decisions in the past, past few years is like we try and keep uh, our role as sort of like stewards of the checkout experience uh, top of mind and take that role pretty seriously. Um, because of like the scale at which Shopify operates, we can really impact what is the experience of shopping for a small merchant online and how, um, like, what are your associations with that? And Mm -hmm. is that a shopping experience that you're going to trust in the future? And we want, we want buyers to feel a lot of confidence that they can shop from an independent retailer and it's going to be as trustworthy as it would be on a big marketplace. So um, those are the types of things that even if an individual merchant might want to make that choice, we have to um, kind of like keep the larger picture in mind and make sure that we're not creating a system that, you know, if every merchant adopted it would degrade trust in the system of shopping overall. Yeah. Um, and that can feel like maybe um, dramatic, but I, I think it's warranted given like the scale that Shopper, Shopify operates at. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's it's such a great topic because it, it speaks also to like one of the reasons why designing for complexity is a much more um, present thing in Shopify today, right? Like our merchant population is selling every type of product that you can imagine in different locales. And sometimes that involves things that like, you know, sometimes are not normal in one place, but are super available in another. Um, and the types of products and the way they do their business varies accordingly. So it's impossible to be overly opinionated or even moralistic in the way that we approach uh, any kind of policy development, but also like actually design, right? Like it's, hey, this is your business, which is helping you with your business. So we can't be too opinionated in what you decide to do with your business, which I think is a super super hard thing to do sometimes but also like the right call (laughs) the right place to land on most of these issues um yeah doesn't mean it's easy by the way but no that's it it's part of the work yeah yeah every day you kind of think but also okay okay I feel mostly good about this so that's all good um I want to draw back to some key skills so thinking about the work that you're both doing and I think my you know my read is that there are probably a subset of particular skills that you've both identified as being fundamental to how you approach complex problems. So what are those? Like, what would you say are your superpowers that you bring to the table when you see that the fight's going to get real messy with like whatever the product problem is? Um, Roxy, why don't you kick off with that? I think the easy answer for this one, for anyone that's in the design field, is empathy. (laughs) <laughs> um, meeting people where they are, yeah. especially in my role, 
I find a lot of the times if I'm running a workshop, it's not so much about the thing that we're producing. It's more so about creating a space for people to vent yeah, <laughs> and to talk about what they do and just to feel appreciated for the things that they go through and yeah. all of their um, pains. They yeah. also have brilliant ideas. So a lot of the time it's just um, empathizing and listening to the people that know their job better than I ever will. Yeah. Um, beyond that is making connections mm-hmm. across the organization um, and having to facilitate difficult conversations. Ooh. So like navigating mm-hmm. them or specifically like creating um, probes for difficult conversations? I would say creating probes. Um being in a position where I can see that something is not done in a way that is helping our support mm-hmm. folks, mm-hmm. but it was done that way for a reason. Yes. And so it's about talking to the person that did it for that reason Yeah. and trying to get them to empathize with the other people's experiences. Yeah. I love that. I love that. What about you, Christine? What are the superpowers that you look for that that help designing in that checkout space? I think uh, kind of uh, tolerance for um, ambiguity. I I don't know if that's specific to checkout. I think that's a good thing for Shopify overall. Yeah. I I would say um, one of the superpowers I lean on a lot is... um, like diagramming and trying to like visualize uh, relationships and systems and things. That's uh, I'm a big diagrammer. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's like often a tool that I, I pull out. So can we double click on that? Because this is the silent piece, right? So like Roxy, you're a service designer. We don't have many service designers. And I think in the last few years, we've kind of Design as an industry, design and tech, we've kind of tussled over the role of service design and how what it does and how it's different from, say, research or how we kind of actually bring that value to the table. And my hypothesis is this: is most of us are probably using service design in our work. The reality is that we're probably and exactly what you just said there, Christine, like that whole like diagramming and mapping as Roxy was saying earlier on like just showing the system so that everyone can see the complexity like that is a big artifact in in like that service design space but I wonder what you think about like actually calling it into the like we need to start with service design like we rather than just kind of sort of doing this because it feels like the best solution but actually saying hey everyone we are designing this as a service from day one we're going to pick up from this point and at every stage we're going to understand that that is the actual thing that we're bringing to the table what are your thoughts on taking that approach much more like actively up front the way i see service design broadly speaking is taking a big picture approach and that's something that we can all apply to a lot of different things i think by encouraging people to look beyond the interface or the product and start to see products as services is the first step. And the second step is talking about all of the things that are not visible, yeah. which is where visualizing them becomes so handy. I love that. I love that. 
I really like the um, notion of sort of like applying a, a service lens to a lot of the work we do. Like one of the things we've we've talked about a lot in the last few years is how we've the biggest sort of like meatiest opportunities for impact are the ones that cut across teams or cut across groups. And yeah. those are the more challenging ones to solve. And those yeah. are actually the ones where service design feels like it really shines and having that mindset really helps. Um, so, yeah, I think the the projects that I think about that have been really impactful are ones that have done a good job at, you know, tying together threads from a few different groups. Yeah. And we talked about this when we were having our prep conversation, but like my example is always the uh, very first government digital service of this kind of modern era, which started in the UK. It literally was called GDS, Government Digital Service. And, you know, one of their first things was to take a very policy driven approach to tech. Right. So um, I think I'm pretty sure there was like a very objective thing, which is we have too many websites they are too expensive. We've got to cut costs. And so like pure business objective at the top of it but they started by saying rather than starting with policy and mandate we'll start with people and problems and we'll solve the problems that people have which will lead to the improvements in policy and mandate and because obviously government is complex service design became the lens through which every single project was started and I feel like they had a huge amount of success if if nothing else in you know all the Canadian services that I use in in Canada right now seem to be using GDS templates and profiles. And I believe, Roxy, you were part of actually working with the Canadian Digital Service at one point on that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's correct. I was working for uh, Service Ontario as a service designer. Yeah. And GDS was what we looked to Yeah, as the gold standard yeah. of how would GDS do this? Exactly. Why aren't we doing it that way? Yeah. It was a- more of a, like, what took us so long <laughs> to design services for people isn't that like the whole point and then we come <laughs> aren't we designing circle? things for humans yeah full circle on ux and the user centered and the user experience thing all over again right it's centering people not necessarily the tech and i i think as christine you were saying like i do think there's just sometimes we want to remind ourselves to do that is to like look at the horizontal and all of the actors before we start doing like the product lens and the feature lens so that at least we can see the complexity we're designing for. Okay, I have a couple of final questions for you both as part of this conversation. And rather than me asking them, I'm actually going to ask them through the medium of our lovely little fortune teller here. So you have four options to start with. You have the shopping cart, which obviously check out. You have a banana got the rocket ship and you have not a cabbage but a lettuce uh so christine starting with you which one would you like to start with the banana the banana okay so i've got to go b a n a n a right that was enough so we've got the numbers three eight seven and four in there which would you like uh seven Seven. Okay. The question behind number seven is, what's your process for starting a new thing? Brand new project shows up tomorrow. What is the first thing you're going to do? Probably the first thing I would do would be like fire up an empty dock 
and usually like just start talking to people. Um, So like figure out who are the people who have the most context on this thing and start taking notes and kind of like building building up a little bit of a dumping ground for everything I'm learning. And mm-hmm. that is, I would say 99% of the time, like how most work starts for me. Yeah. Um, and then kind of like pulling together the narratives from there. When do you first think about involving other people? So when does it go from being like a thing that you're trying to understand to, okay, I'm now ready to socialize my own thinking? Or should I say, yeah, when are you putting out your own thinking from that process? Probably at the point where I feel like I've made some connections and I can kind of see it. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit hard to describe, but once I've talked to enough people that I feel like I, I've, I've grokked it or yeah. at least like I've developed an initial opinion. Yeah. Um, I find sometimes it's when I can, I, to build on what you're saying, when I can describe the problem clearly enough that I only have to explain Mm. it once I'm probably good to go on getting other people in assuming I'd still have to provide lots of clarity but I've been able to understand it enough to give it a simple breakdown and that's when it's good to then bring other people in to start working with me on it but it's hard to oh that's a good uh yeah 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 that's a that's a good way of measuring it because I do have a few things like uh you know, that aren't at that point for me yet that I still have like in the cooker. And uh, I'm still like, you know, I'm kind of wondering like, hmm, like, why haven't I shared those things yet? And that's probably a good measuring stick. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Thank you very much for describing how you start. Uh, Roxy, what would you like to start with? Mm. I was also going to do the banana, but let's do lettuce. Lettuce. Okay. L-E-T-T-U-C-E. This is a real spelling challenge kind of job. This is. Okay. We've got the same, <laughs> the same numbers. It's hard to tell how many A's and N's were in banana. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, three, eight, seven, and four again. Uh, since Christine had seven, I would say between three, eight, and four, which one would you like? Hmm. Let's do eight. Eight. Okay. Nope. Try not to drop it. All right. Question eight is, what app, service, or product do you wish you had worked on? Oh, this is such a juicy question. I'm sure I'm not going to answer it well on the spot. (laughs) Something that I think of as a human-centered or a designing for someone's, I guess, desirability example is vitamin gummies. (laughs) <laughs> that is because such a cool answer. vitamins are important vitamins to me are not a very desirable thing to take yeah. but gummies are yeah. and so if I look in a cupboard and I see that I have gummies I am drawn to take one but yeah. if it's and a it's vitamin extra- that's just like a pill I probably won't do it. it yeah 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 there you go <laughs> that is so I kind of wish I thought of that idea you'd be so I'm sure whoever thought of it has got like some sick patent and is totally retired and just living out their best life on that stuff. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I really I hope, hope so. so, yeah. <laughs> Smart ideas, exactly. Um, Roxy, Christine, thank you so, so much for being a part of the conversation. It's been really nice to talk to you both about complex services and the specifics of what you're working on at Shopify. Um, we will put up all of the uh, 
Gabin so folks can find you on the internet, maybe, if they want to carry on and have a few more chats about what it is that you do with us. But thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. Thanks for listening to Inside Shopify UX. Check out more from our team or find out how to join us by visiting ux.shopify.com. Inside Shopify UX is hosted by me, Lola Yelayo Pearson. Produced by Jen Shaw. Assisted by Isabel Hamilcarassi. Edited by Michael Bussa. With art and graphics by Alicia Giroux. Danny Chavez-Ackerman. And Trevor Slovani. Music by Silent Quiet Spaces. On the next episode of Inside Shopify UX, one of my favorite topics, inclusivity and accessibility.